0: If you would <clears throat> please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 12 verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. <laughs> Blessed is the reading of God's holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, let us take our time to revel in both sides of what is presented here. For they interpret one another. May we continue to revel in the beauty Of your holiness in mercy that saves us from your holiness in order to exalt your holiness through your Son Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. The lesson of Hebrews chapter 12. It has been and now it continues to be. If you don't know, that means knowledge. It means using your mind. It means contemplating. If you don't know what a Christian possesses, then you may ignore it. Or you may sell it for something worth far less. Look down at your text and notice that verse 18 here begins with the word for. Meaning because. Which means... You can't read this paragraph isolated. It's coming out of what he previously said. It's giving an argument. So here's the flow coming from verses 16 and 17. Christian, in the original context, Hebrew Jewish Christians tempted to go back to Judaism. Don't be like Esau. Who sold the promises for a single meal. Because, verse 18, Because you've not come to Mount Condemnation, but you've come to these glorious truths of Mount Zion. In other words, he's saying, Don't do this why? Because of this paragraph we are looking at this morning that is filled with reality. Know it. Know this paragraph. Love it. That's the power to not be an Esau. Esau did not appreciate. His birthright as the firstborn of Isaac to inherit the blessing God promised to Abraham through him and through his descendant to all the world, he didn't appreciate it. He was entitled to it, it was his, and then he traded it in for a bowl of stew. Pause for a moment. He didn't ask for that birth, right? But boy, was he blessed. What a warning this is for human beings who many don't count their blessings if they're born into a family that are Christian parents. If they were raised up in the local church of Jesus Christ. It's a warning, don't be like Esau and give away the eternal blessings for instant gratification. And that is exactly what the original readers of this letter were tempted to do. They were tempted to abandon the gospel, the true gospel of Christ and return to the Old Testament shadows, temple worship, animal sacrifices, kosher diet, circumcision. And so the author, he says, here's the means, my dear readers, to not do that. And the means is knowledge. You have to think about the words he's writing. Know the truth. And so that's what causes him to go now to lay out a contrast. The terrors of the law. The terrors of on Mount Sinai, which for them now is representing, you want to go back to Judaism? You want to go back to works of the law and be under the law? He Pits it up against the glories of Mount Zion, which picture the joy of life under the new covenant. And so his tone of voice is clear. Wake up. Wake up. If you have come to saving faith, then you're to know this. You have not come to this. But you've come to this. Know the contrast. So let's look at it. First... Know what Mount Sinai represents the law. Verses 18 to 21. Let's read it again. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble. With fear. So the writer, we know what he's doing. He's rehearsing history. He's rehearsing what happened that is laid out in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, and Deuteronomy 9, where Israel was waiting to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the law from Mount Sinai. Why would God reveal himself in such a terrifying manner? To where even the great Moses said, I tremble with fear. Well, the answer is because it's where he's giving the law. Or to say it this way, it depends on the answer to another question. Why did God give the law of Moses? Here's the Apostle Paul's answer from Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. But the scripture, In its context there, in Galatians, it's clearly referring to that part of the Scripture, which is Moses, the law. But the Scripture has shut up, locked up, in other words, imprisoned all men under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe the gospel. That's why Paul said very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the law, the ministry of the law was a ministry of death. how he looked at it. That's what it brings. The law is a ministry of just condemnation to sinners. Because the law, as Paul will argue in Galatians, it did not have within itself the power to change the human heart. Or the way he put it is, to make alive to God. And therefore it only brought condemnation because of sin. And so, by implication, he's saying to these Christians, who their culture and religion was Judaism before their conversion, or by implication he's saying to any of us Christians, go ahead and put yourself back there on Mount Sinai or at the base of Mount Sinai. And he means, I mean, apart from Christ, do it. Put yourself back there. Apart from being made alive to God. Apart from new birth. Go, or today, just put yourself under the law. Live your Christian life believe in Jesus, and now live by works of the law. That's what he's saying. By nature, though, here's the problem. We're all blind in our sin before the one and only Holy God. We, we, by nature, throughout this earth today, people are riding bikes and they're reading the newspapers and they're drinking their coffee on a Sunday morning. And we all compare ourselves with serial killers, and terrorists, and child molesters, and the Adolf Hitlers of the world. And we think, well, yeah, to err is human, but look, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm really not so bad. And we may go on to affirm God is real. God is holy. But because of our sin nature, we don't really grasp what that means. But then, the law of God comes. And it shows us. God's absolute holiness, like He did on Mount Sinai. And sinners tremble, like Moses. Or, like the prophet Isaiah, when God gave him the vision, And he encountered Yahweh, the Lord, sitting on the throne. And what was his initial response to that presence? Verse 5, Isaiah 6. Woe is me. Not good. Because I'm lost. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Because my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh, of hosts. Isaiah did not change. Nothing changed with Isaiah at that moment. What changed was his perception of the depth of his sin. What changed was he saw reality more clearly. And what changed that perception was the presence of the knowledge, of the truth of God's holiness. So this scene that he pictures here On Mount Sinai, it was a severe thunderstorm. It got dark. It got gloomy. The the winds were howling. Did you just pick up a, a taste of it from Exodus 19, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And then there was the sound of the trumpet that got louder and louder and louder. And then the voice of God thundered. And to sinners, it was so frightening. They begged. No more, Moses. Tell him to talk to you and you tell us what he says. We don't want to hear God speak anymore. For, verse 20, they could not endure the order that was given. Not just a human being, but even if a, an animal touches the base of the mountain, it shall be. Killed. Stoned. The only way to get a clear knowledge of ourselves is to look upon our Creator's holiness. His holiness, like with Isaiah, reveals our pride. It reveals our self. Sinful self-righteousness, our hypocrisy, our sin, our hearts. Until we have some understanding of God as He has revealed Himself in Scripture, like at Mount Sinai, then we easily flatter ourselves and think, We're not all that bad. Really. This is what the horrendous captain of a slave ship John Newton meant after his conversion to Jesus. He had to live the rest of his mortal life constantly battling what he did. Thousands of human beings. And this is what he meant when he penned the great hymn, Amazing Grace. Quote, T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. and grace my fears relieved the theme of the book of hebrews all these months long it has been the law of god reveals and it condemns sin and it points us To the reality of the Savior from just judgment. Our High Priest, the only mediator between us and Mount Sinai, Jesus Christ the Man. And so, The author's point in chapter 12 is that while the the law reveals God's holiness and convicts us of deserved condemnation, here's his main point now. Nevertheless, oh, I love concessive clauses. Nevertheless, Jesus is the mediator. Who paid the penalty pictured at Mount Sinai for every person who would ever believe in Him. Which means the path to Mount Zion always goes through Mount Sinai, where we encounter reality, where we encounter the terrors of God's holiness. Terrors of God's law. Now here's the kicker. In the larger context. Once you've arrived in Mount Zion, you've been saved from uh, Mount Sinai's just terrors. My fellow Jewish Christians, why in the world would you ever want to go back to Mount Sinai? That's his point. Why would you ever want to go back to live under the law? And so he moves on then in verses 22 to 24 to motivate them by placarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read it. You haven't come. Christ is a Christian to Mount Sinai, but you've come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, and to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You've come to God The judge of all. And you've come to the spirits. Of the righteous made perfect. You've come. To Jesus. The mediator. Of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood. That speaks a better word. Than the blood. Of Abel. That is good news. Instead of fear and separation, he says we have joy and closeness to God in Christ. We don't just come up to the foot of the mountain. We come to the Father crying, Abba. That's the gospel. The author describes the new place where believers in Jesus have come. And he describes it in this passage with three terms. Here's the place. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. Let's look at him. You've come to Mount Zion. What is this? Well, Mount Zion was the name for that stronghold, that fort. David was king now for seven years in, in Hebron. But then David and his troops had a battle. And they conquered that stronghold there that he named Mount Zion. It's right there in what we know as Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 5. And therefore, the Mount Zion became a synonym for Jerusalem. It's used over 150 times in the Old Testament. And in the Psalms 38 times, most of them by David himself. Because Mount Zion came to represent, and right there is where the temple was going to be built. It came to represent the place where God and the king, and David's great descendant, Jesus the king, where God and the king dwell with his people Mount Zion. It's where you've come, Christian. Secondly, you've come to the city of the living God. It says that in verse 22. We've come to this city. Now, he means spiritually you've come to it. He has to mean that. Because there's a sense in which the city... We're not in it yet. It's still yet to come. And what I mean is, listen to what the author says a number of sentences later. In chapter 13, verse 14. For here, during this life, right now, in our mortality before the second coming of Jesus, here we have no lasting city. But we, we seek... The city that is still to come. But he says we've come to this city. We have. Spiritually. We are citizens of heaven. We have been raised up spiritually in Christ. We're seated with Him in heavenly places in the city of what? The living God. Because through Jesus... We enter into a living, not, not a dead religion of law doing. We, we, we enter into a living dynamic relationship with the very much alive creator of the universe who dwells within us. He says that's where we dwell in the city of the living God. And thirdly, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the holy city that the Apostle John saw in his vision on the Isle of Patmos. He put it this way in Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That had not happened yet. But if you're in Christ, you have come into the heavenly Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, that holy city represents God's dwelling with his people. This is the next thing he says, the next verse. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. But now to be born again is to have entered the dwelling place of God already, even though there is the not yet aspect of it. The kingdom of God has come. The rule and the reign of the king, Jesus, is present, and it is still not yet. That's the tension throughout the New Testament. He's talking about the already by the person of the holy spirit. And then he goes on to say, look at verse 22. You've come to uncountable innumerable angels in festal, that means like holiday, feast, gathering. Feel the contrast with Mount Sinai. God is no longer unapproachable. But He dwells among a worshiping society in which even now we in the flesh down here participate with them. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation 5. John says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is Jesus to mean. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. If nothing else, that means for us in this room as Christians, when we gather. We should be about resisting cold heartedness when the songs of praise go up in the gathering. As we join the chorus of uncountable angelic beings. And, verse 23, you've come to the assembly. It's the Greek word, ekklesia, which is the word we translate all the time into English as church. That's what it means. The church is not a person. It's the gathering of the people. It's His body. You have come to the church or the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, that word there, firstborn, occurs nine times in the New Testament. Seven of them refer to Jesus himself. One of them, we've already seen in chapter 11, referred back under Moses in Egypt, the firstborn of every household that was going to be killed by the death angel if there was no blood. Now, that's it. That's eight. And then there's one other time, and it's right here. And it's not singular. Singular. It's in the plural. The firstborn ones. What he's saying is you you have come to the church, the assembly of all those who have been and are born again, saved, they're in Christ, the firstborn, Jesus. If you're in Him, you're part of the firstborn. You are the inheritor. That's how he began the book with Christ, Jesus, the creator of the universe. And all things are given to him. He is to inherit all. And if you're in him, you inherit. You have the firstborn inheritance rights as God's children. Next, you have come to God, the judge of all. Is that a joyful thing? I mean, look what happened when the people of Israel drew near to Mount Sinai. Now we are to be happy though, as a Christian, that we draw near and close to God. The judge of all. It's what he seems to be saying. Shouldn't we shudder? Think about your life and your sin. Shouldn't you shudder? If you're in Jesus, the answer is no. Not if you trust in the high priest. Not if you trust in the only mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Because we come with confidence before the judge of the universe as Christians, because by definition, part of being a Christian is you know something. You know that Jesus was already judged in your place. And underlining this, he's saying to these Christians who are experiencing evil at the hands of human beings, you've come close to God who is the judge of all. Can rest assured? And then he says this, in other words, in other words, do you get it? We are part of all the spirits of the righteous human beings who have been made perfect. In other words, we as believers right now are joining the redeemed of the ages. All who have been justified, put in right standing with God through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Many, many, many of those believers have died. And they have not yet received their resurrection bodies, which awaits the second coming. But their spirits have been made perfect. They're whole. They're no longer sinning. We've been raised up with Christ. And in a sense with them in the heavenly realms. Though we're righteous, yet down here we still sin. He is saying in a mystical way, those of us on earth are in dwelt by the Spirit. We're born again. We're in the kingdom of God. We are one with all believers from all ages. One body. And then he says, we have come... To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, not the old he just laid out. The experience of Mount Sinai, or then from then on out, and, and, and after Ezra and Nehemiah, in the development of Judaism, in the time between the old testament and the new testament with its legalism and doing goodism and law keeping that is fearful divine holiness without a mediator that will only lead to a voice of god which is so terrible, they will close their ears up and say, please stop, let the hills and the rocks fall upon us instead of hearing Him. So hear the words again though, for us Christian. But we have come To Jesus, the mediator, meaning the one who stands between us and Sinai, God. Because Jesus absorbed in our place all the terror of Mount Sinai. He absorbed the condemnation of the law. And that mediator is why we can come to the God of Mount Sinai and say, Abba, Father. Because that is the very spirit of His Son in us. And with comfort and peace because we, we know you view me as utterly sinless when it comes to our relationship. You view me not only that, but as perfectly righteous, as a perfect faithful son in law keeping. Because our mediator did that in His humanity for us. He absorbed the horror of Mount Sinai by shedding His blood to make that new covenant of mercy. And that blood speaks. Look at it, verse 24. And we have come To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember in Genesis, Cain killed his brother Abel. God said to Cain, Abel's blood is crying out to me. Jesus, his blood speaks a better word than that. Abel's blood was crying vengeance, justice. Jesus' blood sprinkled on the believer speaks emphatically of God's forgiveness to guilty sinners. It's better than vengeance. It's better than the blood of bulls and goats, which can never take away. I don't want to leave. do you love this text? Let's see it. Be a bird. Look at the big picture of what we have just viewed here. Mount Sinai. In other words, standing you. Put yourself there. Standing alone. Without a mediator. Without the blood of Jesus, God, Mount Sinai, God is justly terrifying. And if he's not to the soul of that person, that's the deception of sin. Speak no more. But in coming to Mount Zion, to the merciful, blood bought, mediated presence of the same holy God of Mount Sinai, we hear something different. We say, Speak! Because what we hear are the words of the new covenant I love. You, I forgive you. I purchased you. I chose you. I cleansed you. And I will keep you. Let's go back and join the church that this was originally written to. Sit with them. In the reading of the admonition of this whole letter to them as a whole. And at this passage, hear the context. Don't be like Esau. Do not move from the inheritance of Christ to legalism. Religious do-goodism where you think you're good enough on your own to approach God because you do X, Y, and Z. Therefore, you can come up on Mount Sinai. And they hear, okay, okay, we got you, but where's the power? Where's the power to help me not be an Esau? The main motivation is not because of the fearfulness of Mount Sinai. That's not his point. The main motivation is the preciousness of the Gospel, of the loving Savior who purchased the eternal joy of Mount Zion for you. It is the open door of a merciful, unending, future joy in the joy of God that was all purchased by Christ and laid up for you in heaven." One last application of this. Because of what we have read, do not deny the reality of the biblical God in order to be a contemporary, light-hearted, American, evangelical Christian with an irreverent attitude that, that has this idea that God is just a mushy grandfather with no anger towards sinners. Only permissive. Don't go there. Because when you do, you lose the meaning of the gospel. Keep the gospel of Jesus Christ straight and clear. God still, this moment, is a consuming fire. Just look down a few verses to the end of the chapter, the last verse. Here's the true God of the Bible. I don't know if you have, but I have many times with my family driven through New Mexico. Picture the wide open nothingness of New Mexico and you're on foot. And it's held and it's rained and your entire body's soaked with water and your shoes and your socks are soaked with water and you are alone walking in the wide open and there's thunder and lightning bolts Everywhere around you. That's Mount Sinai. That's God. And it's terrifying because you might die. But here's what it is to be a Christian. You're not walking. You're in your car. And as Kathy and Chris got to see that in the middle of the country in Dallas, you know, hey, lightning storms are pretty cool there, unlike here in Southern California. You pull over to the side safe on rubber wheels, grounded in order to just marvel and enjoy the grandeur of the lightning storm in safety. No wonder we are to join the angels in festal celebration. Singing with the former slave ship Captain John Newton. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Which led to that same grace through Jesus Christ, my fears relieved. Let us stand and sing this with all the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven.